0: Anita
1: Baker, yeah, huh. you know she's a, a little before your time. No, she is a real superhero. You know, but you've done something that helped her, and that's uh, ownership over her master. Yeah. For you, how how important is that, chance, For you to help someone of her stature get those uh, get her masters back?
0: It was a deep thing. It's a deep learning experience. Let me tell a story. Years back, I was in Los Angeles for the Grammys, and there's, like, pre-parties before the Grammys, like, that everybody goes to and meets and, you know, and you talk and you get people's numbers and stuff like that. So me and my mom went to this one Grammys party
1: where Anita Baker
0: was there. And me and my mom were, like, standing in line for something. And Anita Baker noticed me and walked over and, uh, and started and started talking to me. That's a, a, that's a big deal. I don't know how many of you guys have ever been noticed by Miss Anita Baker. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> Not no one in here, you I don't sure? think. I had it. It's okay. I'm a, you live vicariously to me. So I basically saw her. She saw me. She came over to me and my mother and uh, and starts talking to us, sharing really kind words. She took pictures with us. Like It was a highlight of my life, basically. And uh, afterwards, we exchanged numbers and she became a huge... Supporter in my life. So, anytime I would drop music or I would, you know, post a picture of my kids, she'd be in my comments like, oh, the baby's again so good. It was like I had like an extended Auntie, family. Yeah, you know what I mean? And so I already loved and respected her, but in the time since then, she's just always been like in my corner from afar. And so, fast forward to 2019, uh, Miss Anita Baker put out a tweet uh, that said, uh, basically outlining that she's being done dirty by the industry, like so many other people have. But this is obviously a, a, a queen of music, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and she basically said that her contracts had expired and that many people on her record label, which is Elektra, um, had had their, uh, their contracts expire and had their masters uh, returned to them. And Miss Anita Baker was one of the few people um, you know, that, that wasn't afforded that that luxury. And she had noticed that her white counterparts, these rock dudes and everybody else was getting out of their contracts and that she was stuck. So after going through all this legalese and back and forth, she went to Twitter and asked her fans around the world to do her a favor and boycott her music from streaming it, from buying it in order to, you know, show the label that she was deserving of autonomy around what happens with her music um and Twitter being Twitter uh they messed it up they like the conversation devolved into like people making jokes about how they needed her music to clean their house and sorry auntie I can't blah 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 mm-hmm. and that and, and that probably shouldn't have bothered me as much as it did but it did and I and and so I just put out a couple of tweets that was just basically saying like Y'all bogus as hell. This is one of our, you know, elite, iconic, living legends who's, like, speaking to us mm-hmm. as a as a group, mainly probably to black folks, saying, hey, can you help me get back my agency? And we're taking the opportunity to, to joke about it. And so whatever happened, that, like, ended up, like, trending, and it became, like, a little thing, and I honestly forgot all about it. And so fast forward... Um, couple months ago i was in vegas for a show and i heard after my show that miss anita baker was doing a residency in vegas so i was like why would i miss that so i go i bring my friends we sneak in you know hop in our seats like midway through the show we're a little late didn't hit up anybody told them we're coming and out of nowhere miss anita baker stops one of her songs and makes the announcement to the crowd that she has uh won the rights to her masters back and also takes the time to point me out in the crowd and said that she wanted to thank me for helping her get her master's back. And so I immediately felt uh, imposter syndrome
1: because the way that,
0: you know, the story began circulating was, you know, or at least the way that people were taking it was like that I bought her master's back or that I, you know, came into some label office with a baseball bat or something (laughs) like that. And so I talked to my mom about it. And what my mom was saying was that, you know, you never know how powerful your voice is until you use it. Mm -hmm. And so regardless of how you feel right now, the facts are that Miss Anita Baker did get her rights. And Miss Anita Baker did thank you for what you contributed in that fight. And so she told me to take it as a lesson to just understand, like like I said, you never know how powerful your voice is Mm -hmm. until you use it, especially when it's, um, one of few, when you're the when you're the single person of an opinion, or you're or you're the first person to speak up on something, and so, you know, shout out to Miss Anita Baker. We're at we're at we're at, uh, on the cusp of, or no, we're in the middle of a radical revolution of thought, of of especially as people in the workforce, and every workforce is industrialized and every worker is commodified. And so as a as an artist, we're like the best communicators. So it's going to be on us to be able to uh, communicate to everyone else what our issues are and where our freedom lies or, wh- or what is the route to getting to where we need to go. Um, and if the artists, if the creatives, if the main communicators are stifled or aren't able to Speak as clearly as they need to, or with the clarity, or with the platform that they need to, then we're all doomed. So I say all that to say, f- Electra Records, <laughs> and f- any label, or manager, or anybody in an industry that's trying to um, take away agency from artists. And I think no. you
1: know this is this is such a crucial thing. I think about this a lot. I was actually texting with Corey Henry, and he was we were talking about how. Um, you know, Anderson ta- yeah. got the tattoo that yeah. basically said, if I didn't put it out in my lifetime, do not put this out. And then people were making a joke out of it. I'm like, but you don't understand. Yeah. If your life's work is this thing, and th- there's a reason why like Prince didn't put out certain stuff. Prince is like was like a well-known perfectionist. Yeah, And when they put out these albums, you know what I'm saying? No,
0: straight up. Posthumous albums are like one of the most messed up things to me in the world and you wouldn't believe how often i get asked to do feature verses on rappers albums who died mm. and to me you know like I, I operate in a weird space already in the industry but like when people ask me to do stuff i have like a million feelings about it already but when someone asks me to get on a project that somebody that's basically a collection of things that weren't finished, you know. I just feel gross about it a little bit, you know what I mean? And I'm aware that rappers a lot of time in this day and age sell more after they're dead than when they're alive. So I'm just like, I don't know, it seems like a, I don't know, a concerted effort, you know what I'm saying? Like, are, is is it in the best interest of a label to keep an artist healthy or alive mm-hmm. or... You know, not incarcerated, or is it more beneficial for them financially to see to see that that demise comes? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like a so. I, whenever somebody hits me up and they're like, "Yo, blank is about to drop," I'm like, "Blank passed away." oh like, this is cap.
1: Let Let me ask you about PTSD that you did with uh Herb Juice World. Uh, Lil we recorded Uzi Vert. that.
0: That's a good point. We did record that song when Juice was alive and that is also my so like, I, I it, it was a whole thing, like, we had planned on shooting a music video, we were in a group chat, me, him, and Herb, you know, like, um, that was just a really a sad thing overall, but as you see, like, there's no music video for it, you know, like, and I'm not, and also, like, I don't want to make it seem like I'm saying people's teams are, like, their labels are all, like, doing this from, like, a space of, like, knowing that it's bogus. It's, like, it's not necessarily intentional, but it is, like, capitalizing off of something that was tragic that happened already. So, like, I don't know. I don't even know exactly what I want to say about it. But, yeah, PTSD. I'm sorry. You can ask your question. I just no, kind of You, know, <laughs> you, 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 you kind
1: of, like, <laughs> you kind of already went into detail. I was just bringing it up on, it's like when you said you don't really like doing posthumous, but you made it clear when you said Juice WRLD was alive when you all made that record. Yeah. So you already summed it up. Yeah, no,
0: I mean, in any case, I think, like, it comes down to, like, it's circumstantial. Like, I guess, like, like I don't know. I'm not turning down a Michael Jackson record. Like, has yeah, <laughs> with a Mike record. I'm probably going to get on it. But, like, in terms of, like, people that are my contemporaries that, that you know, pass away in, in tragic circumstances, like, it's like Ayanna said. Like, it's like, how do I know that they wanted to? I know Prince didn't. I know Prince hated holograms and the idea of, like. You know, having somebody materialize in spirit after they're dead. Mm-hmm. And then they hologrammed him at the Super Bowl. Yeah. Like they they held, you know, listening parties at his house after he died. Like there is no respect for an artist uh, really even while they're alive. But definitely once they die, they're fully commodified. I don't want to do nothing. That I don't want nobody to do with me for show. Don't make no holograms of me. Don't drop <laughs> no music after I'm dead. Like,
1: you heard it. Yeah, you heard it. <laughs> it be no.
0: I will say it as many times as I need to. <laughs> Once bell. I'm gone, like rock with what I dropped. That's it. There's a, Unless my wife puts it out, even then you gotta give her the eyebrow. Like, <laughs>
1: that like, say? He wanted to put it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking a lot when you talk about that. I think about parallels with like visual artists. Like, I don't know. Did you mm. see the Basquiat? The so one that his
0: family could, did, or the other?
1: No, the other one. The fa- now the family one. That's dope. Yeah. But the one the dude in Orlando, he did the show, and apparently like twenty five of the pieces were seized by the FBI because they might be like counterfeit or something. Anyway, the point is like he's like now he's like larger than life and selling like millions and millions more yeah. than in his lifetime. But I'm I'm making a, tra- a transition because it's like I think a lot of people think when you use the term artist. That musical artists should be considered in a different category as as visual, and it seems like like your recent releases have been like breaking down those barriers between what's visual and the sonic, and I they've been really powerful.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've been trying to like I, I basically I found out very recently on a on a trip to Ghana that there are many many parallels between the subjugated artist and the subjugated artist, the visual and the and the recording artist. Like, both of them, both of us, uh, are constantly stifled by, you know, issues with platforming our stuff, issues with not having the capital to create or to um, distribute our, our works. And I guess, like, the biggest difference is that music, especially hip hop music, is highly visible, you know, and we and, and and our music will make it our words will make it to places where if they were able to see us and like look at us, they'd be like, oh, we don't trust you. Don't come into our country club or whatever. But like, you know, in the car driving, you might be able to catch somebody's ear if you rap. And then the visual artist is like. You know, the communication, the actual work, it's buried a little bit deeper. I was making this point before, like when you're a visual artist, it's hard to communicate the ideas that you're trying to communicate because of the audience. So if you're an artist that's like considered a less well-known artist, you know, um, it's hard to necessarily find people that are in the same price range as you to get your works to because some people think of collecting art as like a Mm -hmm. luxury that that there's like a certain, you know, threshold you have to pass in terms of how much money you make. So their works that they put all this, you know, political meaning or, you know, emotional meaning into uh, sometimes just gets left by the wayside or, you know, their work is destroyed or whatever. Then if you're on the other end, you're a, you know, a high-end, fine artist, then your works are usually like bought up by collectors that, you know, put your in archives and have you like, you know, your stuff collecting dust. And that same message that you're trying to get out is stuck at, you know, some old white dude's house or it's or it's waiting to get auctioned off again. And that conversation that you're trying to have that high level conversation um, is kind of it's stifled. And so I've been trying to figure out ways to work with artists to make the communications of ideas that we have Be as clear and concise as possible, as beautiful as possible, and also not controlled by anybody. You know what I mean? The same way that we deal with with labels is how they deal with galleries. There's people that own their works and leave them out to dry.